Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Okay, today's scripture uh, reading comes from Mark 7, 1, to 1 through 23. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and Jews and all the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with the file of hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called to the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of this body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Thanks, Alejandro. Now let's pray as we begin. But Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray, God, um, right now that you would speak through it um, to our heads, yes, but even more so to our hearts, that our hearts would be rewired to love you, that your Holy Spirit would actually be Um, setting up shop in our hearts to love other people well, to be reminded that we ourselves are your beloved, to know that there's actually something wrong in the world. And in this passage, we find that it's inside of us. And I just pray, God, um, that um, we be reminded today that you desire to give us a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. God, I pray that um, right now through these words that you would soften our hearts. We love you, Jesus. It's your name we pray. Amen. So I want you to imagine you're in an elevator, and you're going to be there for one or two minutes, 
and just one other person is riding with you, and they ask you this question, can you explain the gospel to me? What do you do? Do you know what to say? Uh, do you jump into the biblical, right? Like you got verses in scripture ready to go for the person? Uh, do you go to the theological and begin to describe theological concepts, salvation, covenant, trinity? Do you go practical? Do you say something like, well, hey, I, I can't really do the theological with you, but I can share there's something different about me. Something has changed in the inside of me because I've been interacting with this person, Jesus. And in many regards, this is what we're actually attempting to be able to answer through the series, Good News Gospel, is we're, we're saying, what is actually at the core of the Christian faith? What's the heart behind it? How do I grasp and understand it in a way that's um, tangible, but, but also robust, knowing that um, the scriptures hold a breadth of wisdom and knowledge, and how do I really take into this to know that Jesus actually is still at work in history? Yes, in the future, I believe that. I have hope for a future, but also right in the here and in the now so I can go to work with confidence, so I can enter into relationships with confidence. And over the last couple of weeks, what we've been doing particularly is we've said we're looking at this, what's called the second chapter of the gospel, the fall. How do we understand the entrance of sin into the world? It's been three weeks. Today, we're going to finish that. I'm pretty excited because it gets a little like drab, you know, the, without like the full story. And it gets like a little complex to be like, hey, welcome to church, everyone. You're deceitful in your heart, right? Like it gets a little bit exhausting to do this. But what we did uh, two weeks ago is we talked about um, understanding sin. Um, a, a handful of people took to the term incurvatus in se, which is Martin Luther. He said, uh, a sin is a, a life or a person turned inwardly on themselves that can't see outside of themselves. Uh, last week, we talked about idols that we construct um, in God's place, pseudo-gods uh, that we worship. And what I want to do today is I want to look at the person of Jesus. And in Jesus's time, he spent so much time critiquing the religious spirit of his day. Like over and over and over again in the Gospels, you find Jesus, you think like he would be going to people who are quote unquote sinful and, you know, telling them how to live, but he's not doing that. He's welcoming those people. He's eating with those people. And then he's critiquing the religious elite of his day. And so I want to talk about that aspect of the fall. And, and really what I want to talk about today is a religious formula that we buy into. It's actually the slow drift of our humanity, our human heart, to buy into a type of moralism. And so let's begin here with the Pharisees. They're Jesus's greatest human enemies. Uh, the, they seem to be waiting around every corner to scrutinize and undermine Jesus. Um, they uh, criticized his Sabbath practices, his working and his healing on the Sabbath. Um, they critique his interpretation of his, uh, of his scriptures. And they were critical of his inclusivity and table practice. And today, um, when Alejandro was reading, I was almost chuckling a little bit because they're critiquing um, Jesus' disciples on the washing of their hands. And, you know, we've been through 2020. And so I'm like, I mean, this is one scenario where like, I'm on the Pharisee side. Like, y'all should be washing your hands definitely before you, before you eat. But what we'll see is it's actually more than that. Verse 5, we'll start here. It says this. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And Jesus is just like, boom, he's not having it. He just starts popping off on them. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, like name calling, he's all at it, ready? These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the human tradition. And so what the Pharisees came and did is they, um, they had an oral tradition. It was added on top of the laws. Now, one, one really important thing to understand in this time is you don't have the printing press, right? And so you have, prior to the printing press, you have an oral tradition, right? If you wanted a manuscript like this, you're getting a lot of, you know, people are writing it, writing it, writing it. It's hard to multiply that. And so people, I'm guessing, were better at memorizing things back in the day because what you had was an oral tradition that gave way to, you know, what's written. And actually, we're in the midst of one of the largest shifts. We're really visual people. And so we don't, I mean, I'm just confession. I don't memorize things anymore, right? Like, remember when you used to memorize your friend's phone numbers? I can't even do that anymore, right? It's because we have a picture of our friend on our phone, right? It's given way to that. And so what the Pharisees did in this time is they had the rules. They didn't want to break those. And, and, and the Pharisees get a bad rap. Like these, these were like the religious elite of the day. These were like people that wanted to worship God. They wanted to do the right thing. And so what did they do? They added rules on top of rules to make sure that wouldn't happen. And Jesus' harshest word was for them because they were pretending, because there was a sort of outward religious impression they wanted to make, and it was, ended up being um, what maybe what would, maybe we would call like a heartless, formal religion. And the other thing about the Pharisees is um, Josephus, um, uh, who in his work Antiqu- Antiquities, he wrote that the Pharisees had delivered to the people a great many observances that were not written in the law of Moses. And so it was, it was a, a, an attempt to be holy in one sense. It was right, but at the same time, they took it too far. And you get to see some of this exclusivity in, in verse 3. It says, all the Jews washed their hands, right? To not, to not wash your hands then in this instance would mean that you're anti-Jewish, right? All the Jews washed their hands. That's the right thing to do. Why aren't you doing it? But it was a ritual washing. And so the Pharisees were saying, are you in or are you out? Are, are, you, are you on the right team? Because if you're on the right team, then you do the right practice and you have the right behavior. And again, I look at that and I say, well, actually, that doesn't seem like a, a terrible idea, but Jesus seems to pop off on them. So what, what did, why did Jesus spend so much time criticizing the Pharisees? Why was he so incensed? What is he reacting against? And the Pharisees were wrestling with this. Legalism via human tradition, a spirit of exclusivity, and heart of hypocrisy. Now, say we just, I just saw this. Say you took the heading off of that, like Pharisees wrestled with. Like, if you just had that and you said, fill in the blank on the heading, what would some of your friends think? What would some of your coworkers think? I hope they wouldn't insert your name. That wasn't the goal. But like, would it be like followers of Jesus wrestle with legalism, exclusivity, hypocrisy? And I think when we look at the New Testament, like, this is a byproduct of the fall, right? That, that um, in essence, what we as, as a church are trying to do is to say, we are a community following Jesus. We want what Jesus wants. We're seeking what Jesus wants. Like Jesus is our end. That's like the whole point of who we want to be as a church. Well, then let's go to the things that he spoke against, and that would be sin. What did Jesus say? You let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human tradition. It's extra biblical, right? You, you, you moved on. You, you thought that you graduated from what God said was right and better and true. Uh, my mom uh, went to a Baptist college, and um, it, it, back in the day, it was like rules on rules on rules, right? Like you, you can't dance, you can't drink. Um, women have to dress a specific way. 
Um, and one of the things I was um, thinking a lot about this week is, um, like, what if, what if that is based in Scripture or twisted from Scripture? But also, what if, what if that is actually based on a, 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 or is a byproduct of the time and the era, right? The rules, a lot of these rules came out of the 1950s when women were supposed to do a specific thing. And so a lot of, you know, in churches, we want to talk about, like, um, gender and what men and women can and can't do. But one of the things I think we've done is um, a lot of people who um, lean towards more of like a complementarian stance would say, um, you know, this is actually the role of a woman, but what, what then you get is a regurgitation of something from the 1950s. It's not a product of something from the scripture, but it's actually a product of something from a specific time period. Or like drinking alcohol, right? Like if you, I, I went and did this this week. I was looking at passages in scripture, and there are verses about not getting drunk. There are a lot of verses about not offending other people with your usage of alcohol, but there's nothing outright barring someone from drinking alcohol or clothing or the hair you wear. Um, it's, it's a way of twisting scripture, and it's pulled from a specific era. I was talking to um, Emily, who's a, a leader in our church, um, and she uh, was sharing with me that um, kind of a pushback on the other side of this, and I thought this was really helpful, and she says, but also, Russell, you should note that, like, in some circles, extreme legalism is really helpful for people. Like, it creates the right boundaries and, and rule following that people actually find comforting or can keep them from an addiction or something like that. The problem becomes on the back end. When you make a rule and you break it inside of a community, what do you experience then? Shame. And so this, this spirit of legalism um, really starts to unravel and, and wind out. Maybe, maybe on the outset, it's not that big of a deal, right? But over time, it gets leveraged incorrectly. When I moved to the city, um, my first job was at uh, Blue Bottle, um, and I was a barista. And I was trying to like kind of just hide there. I'm like, I just want to be the barista guy. I don't want to be the pastor guy um, before and, and after this. And um, one of my coworkers found out that I was a Christian and it was so annoying, he called me reverend. He'd be like, two oat lattes, reverend. It's like, heard, you know. Um, and so, yes, yeah, chef. Um, and he eventually shared with me, um, he said, I'll never attend church again. I was like, well, I didn't ask. So I got, you know, I don't know. And I didn't probe too much. And I'll never forget one time he quoted a Bible verse to me. And I said, that's awesome. That's pretty impressive. And he said, um, if I didn't memorize that one, I would get the paddle. And I thought, that's it. Like, it's just heartbreaking. Like, I've never, he'll never attend church again. I, I get why, right? You associate abuse with memorizing scripture. I mean, I, I would run from that too. And that's in a very extreme example, I understand, but this is the outworkings of a heart of legalism. This is legalism and human tradition spun out of control. And again, it's always easier. This has been the truth for all three weeks of this, um, this fall part of this series, is it's always easier to see in other people. It's harder to see in ourselves. Especially something like this, legalism, exclusion, hypocrisy, it's always easier to point the finger, like I'm thinking about other people today, but like what, what, what about in us, right? We're good at examining other people, right? Like we're actually really judgmental in our hearts. We're like, why would they spend money on that? right? I could reprioritize their life and their schedule, right? Before I had kids, I used to think, I would never let my kids do that. Now I'm like, you do you, Rose. Like, have a good day, you know? And so that spirit of legalism, it is easy to shift outwardly. What was the second one? Exclusivity. I'll be quick here. This is really subtle. Um, and I think that, I think this is a good word for us right now, 
as a church. Religious people are always trying to decide who's in and who's out, right? And um, the Pharisees were really good via their rules and tradition of thinning out the herd, right? Let's raise the bar. Let's get the ante up. And when I look at the person of Jesus, he's always like, let's keep expanding the circles, right? Like, I don't know about you, but in my life, it's like, I got like, I got a pretty good circle. I have a good circle of friends. Like, it's kind of full, right? And so it's easy to actually huddle off and to say, like, we're, this is, this is perfect, actually. Let's close this friend group off. When I look at the person of Jesus, Jesus is like, one more. There's room for more, right? You disagree with me? Let's figure it out. Come on, right? It's like discussion and openness. And with the Pharisees, you get this spirit of exclusivity. What about hypocrisy? Right, this is sort of the, um, the, the easy sort of catch-all of how you might view a religious person. Um, but Jesus, um, in the book of Luke, looked at the Pharisees and he says, um, to the crowds, and he says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, meaning it's like a little, the, the leaven of the yeast is just like that little piece that begins to spread in the dough, right? It takes a little bit, but then it takes over. I had way too much coffee this morning, so thirsty. Um, and he goes on in Matthew 23. He just goes on this tirade, right? This is, this, is, this is Jesus in the scriptures. He just keeps going after the Pharisees. Woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you, hypocrites. Um, in Matthew 23, it says this. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And so we're all, we're all sinful. This is what we've been learning over the last couple of weeks. We're all sinful, right? And um, we're, we're, we're learning in that sense how to um, understand our brokenness within a larger story we're calling the gospel, this gospel story, that there's actually something fundamentally wrong with being a human. But the Pharisees, in their hypocrisy, couldn't say, I'm wrong. I have something wrong in my heart. And hear me well. Obedience is good. Obedience is, is what Jesus calls us to, and it's good and beautiful, but obedience cloaked in self-righteousness and condemnation is legalism, right? It's hypocrisy. In fact, maybe, maybe I didn't say it hard enough. Obedience is a great thing, but what we do is we take our obedience and we cover it in self-righteousness and pride and condemnation and a view looking down on other people. This is, this is the spirit of religion. It's, it's, it's about um, laying heavy burdens on other people's shoulders. Hypocrisy, double standards, in or out dichotomies. Um, here's how one scholar said it. He said, the Pharisees had replaced God's love with self-love and God's law with man's tradition. Having made themselves their own gods, they were insisting that others follow them or perish. This is a fear. I don't say a fear. This is a drift. This is a drift of a spiritual person. Is I, I start with this good news gospel. I, I, I start with Jesus and his care and his love and his acceptance for me. And then over time, a subtle drift to say, Thank you, Jesus, for all that. I'll come back to you occasionally. I can take it from here. I, I got the rest on my own. And that subtle drift to self-sufficiency is ultimately a sin. It's a, it's a way of controlling God, and it's not the way of Jesus. And so here's this, um, this religious formula that I want to put before you just as a way of understanding um, how we're seeking or using God. 
It's moralism, it's good behavior, ethical living, it's following the rules. And here's a note on this. Um, if, if you would say today, like, I don't really know like, if, if I'm like a Christian or like I'm a follower of Jesus, you can have moralism and not be a follower of Jesus. Everyone has a sort of standard by which they say they judge right or wrong from. In fact, I've met a lot of um, like people who say they're irreligious, but they actually have a deep moralism about them, the way um, the world should function and the rights and wrongs they think they should have, plus a good religious life, right? These are the activities for God, right? The serving and the giving and um, the externals. This is, this is what Jesus did with the Pharisees a lot. He says, what, is, what does it look like from the outside? And then, of course, we have to minus sin, right? We have to minimize the amount of sin here, particularly the ones that are seen. An image is becoming increasingly important. And then what does this equal? God's favor, right? God's, God's blessing. This is how I can actually get God to love me. Nobody says this out loud. Nobody has this tattooed on them, right? But what we actually have is this sort of inner working in our life, right? We accept it in the beginning that we're loved, that we are God's beloved, that, you know, we're secure. And then there's that subtle drift away to earning, call it like a religious creep. And we don't do it intentionally, but we're essentially saying, God will love me when I change, right? I don't know about you. Have you ever done that where you're just like, I, I can't go to group. Like, I had a crazy weekend, right? Like, I can't, I can't show up and, and, and like share actually what, what happened. And I think this is really important for, for like who we want to be as a church. You can. And, and we need to actually grow more comfortable in allowing that level of brokenness to exist in our midst because that's what Jesus did. And maybe you'd say, well, Russell, I don't really find that compelling, right? Like, like I don't really feel that way. Like, I just kind of do me, and like, I don't, I don't even care. But actually, here's why I think that you still do. Because this formula leaves you with a lot of anxiety in your life. This formula is like a formula for anxiety. All of that doesn't equal God's favor. It equals anxiety. Because you're betraying your own standards, you're, you're, you're always missing the mark of what you think that you should do. And so what is Jesus saying? If that's sort of the religious formula and we just sort of leave that there, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside of a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them, right? Uh, Jesus is giving a graphic metaphor. This is two weeks in a row. Whether you eat clean or unclean food, is, 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 it goes into the mouth, it goes into the stomach, and it goes into the toilet. He's saying, he's saying what comes from the outside isn't going into to the heart. That's not what defiles someone. And then he goes on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evil come from the inside and defile a person. Sort of backwards, right? And it's a little bit intense. Jesus is, in, in one sense, in a very practical way, saying all foods are clean, right? It's the human heart that's unclean, is, is essentially what Jesus is saying in a practical sense. But the intense thing that Jesus is saying is, you and I are what's wrong, actually. Sin, radical evil set up in the human heart um, as a byproduct of the fall is actually what's wrong. And you and I are, what we're doing and seeking meaning and purpose and living our life is we're actually trying to figure out what to do with that, 
right? So we set up this religious formula as a way of trying to un- address the uncleanliness through the externals. And, and when we do this, we actually fundamentally misunderstand what the Christian faith is. And I, I think, I, I often wonder, like, how many of our friends or our family don't realize that when they're rejecting Christianity, they're, they're actually not rejecting the, the good news gospel that we're talking about. They're rejecting um, a, a form of moralism that's been set up for them. They're, they're rejecting the exclusivity that you and I would probably uh, object to as well. And I know you're thinking about a person, but what, what ways do you do that? Right, that you reject what Jesus says, that, that his way is right and better and true because you actually fundamentally misunderstand that gospel. And so this is from Tim Keller. I want to I put this chart up here as a way of, um, of understanding the difference so maybe we can get out of that dichotomy of um, that black and white thinking. So in, in that religious formula, you have, I, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And in the gospel, it's, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. That will change, that will change you completely. That, that will change how you live out your faith in every way. It's, it's a subtle shift, but it's, it's completely the way to understand the gospel. And by the way, I don't know about you, but many of us were actually raised that way um, in that religious side. Obey me and I'll love you. It's, 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 it's something in parenting that I think needs rewiring in a lot of ways, but it's backwards. What about the next one? Our motivation is based on fear and insecurity in that religious formula. In the gospel, the motivation is based on grateful joy. Oh, I, I understand what Jesus did for me. He, he died for me in sacrificial love. Oh, I, I can give to other people, right? Um, in the religious side, I obey God in order to get things from God. In the gospel, we say I obey God to get God, to delight and to resemble him. In religion, my identity and my self-worth are based on how hard I work and how moral I am. Guilty right? Guilty. God, do you, do you see me? Do you see how hard I'm working? Do you, do you see how good I am, right? I'm such a good dad, God. I'm doing such good things for my wife this week. I'm crushing it, right? But it, it's backwards. In the gospel, we say my identity and my self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, and only by sheer grace I am who I am. Only by sheer grace. And then here's two more, just to kind of give us a full circle here. In religion, when, I criticize, when I'm criticized, I'm angry or I'm devastated because I think it's essential to be a good person. But in the gospel, when I'm criticized, I struggle, right? The, the feeling is still there, but it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. And in the religious spirit, my self-view swings between two poles. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident. I'm amazing, right? I'm, I had my spiritual high. I'm up on the mountain, right? I'm proud of myself. But then I am prone to be proud and unsympathetic to people who fail. But in the gospel, my self-view isn't based on a view of myself as a moral achiever. In Christ, I am at once sinful and lost, yet accepted. This leads me to deeper humility as well as deeper confidence. If you had to choose, what category do you want? What category do you drift into? And I love that. I don't have time to go into all this, but... I love that one of the things that um, Jesus critiqued so hard with the Pharisees is that pride and hypocrisy and exclusivity. And then I look at the person of Jesus and I see humility and I see integrity um, and I see this, this word um, alterity. Alterity means like others. And all through the Gospels, Jesus is always othering. He's always in the other space. The one you, you might have guessed he was in, he was in the other one, and he was caring, and he was loving. And so, of course, you, 
in the, in, the, in the theme of the fall, you can reject Jesus by having idols, right? By being like the younger brother and the prodigal son, by living lavishly, blowing your father's inheritance and going crazy. Um, you, you can do that. You can reject Jesus that way. But what we're actually seeing through this passage is that there's another way to reject Jesus, and it's by using your religion to puff yourself up, to make yourself feel better, and in pride and arrogance, say, God, look at how awesome I am. And I think what Jesus would respond in return is, I already died for you. I already did the work that was sufficient. I, I already, I, I, I'm the one that made you good. You don't have to go find yourself being good. Go be good because I love you and there's affirmation in that. There are other ways to reject God. Um, this is a little intense, but this is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, the sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. By the way, you can disagree with this. I, I was wrestling with it this week. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and uh, spoiling sport and backbiting. The pleasures of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside of me competing with the human self, which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who does regularly go to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute, but of course it's better to be neither. I think what he's, what he's saying is, is twisting something that should be good is wrong. And it's a worse kind of evil than just choosing to be evil. Presenting something um, that should be authentic and pure and good as something we're using to get something or to gain something is wrong. And so, in the passage, I think what struck me this week is Jesus' um, care and cultivation of the heart. He says in verse 6, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Meaning, what does Jesus long for? Jesus is not dumb. Jesus knows we're prone to taking the scriptures and using them to our own advantage, um, you know, using them to benefit ourselves. But what does he long for? He longs for hearts that are close to him. He wants our motivations to be to be pure, but how, how do we do that? We do that when our hearts are near him. He wants our obedience, but he wants that to come out of us delighting in him. And here's the thing about um, in human relationships. In human relationships, the better we get to know people, the more we understand their weaknesses and their flaws. It's just like a fact about human relationships. But when, when you're in a relationship with Jesus, what you actually find is he's greater than you could have ever imagined. And over time, you, you think, wow, am I ever going to see a weakness? You're not. It's just going to be greater and greater and greater. And so what about you this morning? Your heart. Is your heart rigid? Is it anxious? Is there a lot of shame in your spiritual walk? Do you tend to get divisive over ethical issues? Do you find other people um, not living up quite to your standards or to your way? And when I was working on this this week, I thought, my heart is hardened in some ways. There are areas of my life where I'm actually angry and I haven't done anything with it, where I'm, I have coldness or bitterness has sort of seeped in. Um, my wife uh, hung a whiteboard on the back of our door um, doing some memorization with the kids, um, and it has a passage um, from Galatians on it, and it's uh, Galatians 5. It's the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing, there is no law. And it just struck me that 
if you're really growing in your spiritual journey, then you're actually getting these things. And that they're not like, I'm trying to be more kind, I'm trying to be more gentle, I'm trying to do self-control. It's actually like God has set up camp in my heart. It's a fruit, right? The fruit of the Spirit. This is a byproduct of the fact that the Holy Spirit lives within me, and it's a fruit that comes out of me. And so let me end with this. In Ezekiel, um, there's a prophetic word given to the people of Israel about a hopeful future that awaits them. And the the whole chapter is incredible, but let me just give you this snippet, because I think this is what the Holy Spirit wants to do right here. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So if you feel that tension today where you say, you know what, I just, my heart is hardened. Let the good news of the gospel soften your heart. That God actually wants a soft heart in you. Yeah, do the good things. Give to the winter drive. Do, do good works, but let it come from a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone. Let's pray. So God, I look at this passage and I think, oh, it's just a, a, a subtle shift in my motivation. It's just a little thing that needs to be changed, but it's not that, God. It is 100% a way of rejecting you to follow that religious formula. So God, I, I repent of that for us as a church. We don't want to do good things to look good on Instagram or to show off. But God, actually, we are coming together today to be reoriented, to believe that you are who you say you are, that you're good, that you love us, that you created us, crafted us in your image, that there's something wrong with the world that we're trying to figure out and navigate, and our heart is prone to bending that inwardly towards ourselves. And so, God, we, we repent for this heart of stone We don't want to be hardened towards the needs of our neighbor. We don't want to be. um, We don't want to be hardened towards our friends, towards our family. We don't want to have coldness and bitterness in our hearts. But actually, we want this heart of flesh, so that you can come in us and and through us and do a work. And so, Lord, as we come to the communion table um, this morning, may the cup and the juice remind us of what you've done, and re-motivate us to go and love our neighbor as ourselves. And so, Lord, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.